episode of our podcast we buzz produced by animal concepts my name is sabrina brando i'm the founder and we help you care for animals and for yourself and support you in other goals that you may have such as conservation education and research today i am delighted to welcome my guest and friend charlotte corny who is the founder and trustee of the wild heart trust board welcome Hello, Sabrina, and so good to see your smiling face after so long. Yes, yeah, it's been many, many years that I had the, you know, the honor and the privilege. It was so much fun to visit the, at the time, the Isle of Wight Zoo, of course, today, uh, differently named, but it was a great trip. I still have wonderful memories, and I hope to come back one day and visit you and, and the wonderful place again. Well, you'd be very, very, very much welcome. So Charlotte, we always like to start the podcast with some sort of, you know, connection story of people with nature, people with animals, if you have, not everybody has, but, uh, you know, we're going to hear a lot about it. And I know you have many. So perhaps if you can uh, share a story that is uh, near and dear from, um, you know, early days. From early days. So, well, I'm 45 now, so um, I'm going to go back to when I was 19 years old. I can remember before that. I have to say I do have the worst memory on earth, but um, I, I do have a particular little, very small bite-sized uh, story to tell, I suppose, to kick things off. And that was um, when I was 19 years old and my whole world changed um, and it changed literally in an instance. Um, and that was when I was um, asked by my dad whether or not I would, um, <laughs> I would consider not going to university as I was planning to do, but whether I would take on an orphaned tiger cub um, who'd been born at Longleat Safari Park and rejected by her mother when she was born. My dad knew, <laughs> knew that I was planning to go away. I'm not saying, I mean, he was a good strategist. I'm not saying it was a ploy to get me to stay and work within our then family zoo. Um, but he really put me on the spot. You know, he said, look, we've got to make a decision today. Um, do you want to look after this baby tiger? Do you want to hand rear her? Um, and I knew that that would be an immense commitment and that I would have to postpone going to university. So anyway, um, I... I agreed. Uh, I said, yes, yeah, of course, like, I'll, I'll do that. And, um, and I remember the day that Zia arrived, and she was literally like, I mean, palm sized, you know, she was absolutely tiny. She was a few days old with her eyes still firmly closed. Um, and I remember taking her into my caravan that I lived in. I lived in a caravan because whilst I was away at school, my dad had moved some rough lemurs into my bedroom um, because my mum was hand rearing them. So I was given a 50 pound caravan to live in. Anyway, um, I digress. I remember standing there holding Zia, looking down at her, this tiny little stripy, vulnerable little creature. And I remember just telling her that I would never leave her. And yeah, 22 years, you know, I was, I was with her for so. But that really, that moment was, was, you know, I guess you could when you can say you could go left or right, 
in your life. And I chose to go one direction and I, I never regretted it, but it was, um, it was a, a, a life-changing commitment. Yes, I can imagine. I mean, that, those are questions that most of us will never, never get, right? So maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, you briefly mentioned a zoo. And so perhaps you can talk about what was it like to grow up in a zoo or like to have lemurs living in your bedroom and all those sorts of things. I guess um, when when I was very young, because my my parents bought the zoo, in fact, when I was only three months old and, and we were living in uh, Manchester at the time before moving to the Isle of Wight. So the, the zoo was um, due to be shut down. It was known as the Slum Zoo of Britain. It was advertised for sale as the Slum Zoo of Britain. And my dad, having never um, had a, actually any professional zoological experience, just decided it would be something interesting to try and do. So that's why he took it on with a with a sort of a prob probably slightly reluctant support of my mum but but they bought it and the whole family moved down to the Isle of Wight so obviously I never knew living anywhere other than within a zoo environment it was a complete bubble and I think people that work in this sort of environment in the zoo world they often say it's like a, a whole universe you know it's like this planet that you inhabit as a, sort of within a universe that becomes everything it's all consuming and so growing up I didn't have any concept that I was growing up in something so extraordinary I suppose when you're a child it's just what you know isn't it and that's what I knew um, and it was of course as I've said it was a long long time ago this is in the, the sort of 70s 80s um, when things were so different anyway so we were at that time breeding a lot of animals. Um, and so my mom would often be hand rearing animals. We would have, um, we had American black bears that lived in the house. So um, they would be absolutely causing havoc around the house. And of course, all my friends at the time desperately always wanted to come and spend their weekends and holidays with me because we would be, <laughs> we would be sort of having competitions with the bears who could jump over the highest mountain of pillows and things like this and and then the bears would be in and out of the dishwasher it was just mayhem I mean it was completely chaotic um I think my childhood was there was no structure to it you know it was um extraordinarily eclectic and um, we had a little leopard called Flossie that my mum hand raised again she lived in the house um and she used to be joined by a black leopard called Bindu, who was born um, in the zoo and was parent raised, but he would come down to keep Flossie company. Um, and together they would sort of gang up and they would sit on the middle stair of the landing. And when you came downstairs in the morning with your 90 on, they would be pouncing at you and biting your ankles. And uh, yeah, it was, um, it was a bit mad. It was a bit mad. And my dad, my dad was massively into venomous snakes. So that was another dimension is that uh, he would quite often get bitten by them. So I think it was nine times he was bitten by venomous snakes. He was in intensive care three times and pronounced clinically dead once. Um, so, you know, you get home from school and it'd be, okay, what's happened today? You know, what, what, what's been going on? Oh, your dad's in intensive care. Okay, right. What's for dinner? Um, it, it, it was... It, it was, I suppose, looking back on it, yeah, it was extraordinary and it was pretty extreme. But I, until I moved school when I was 12, I went to a convent until I was 12. So I had the same gang of friends, you know, that kind of grown up with it with me. And then I moved to a new school. That's when it really kicked in that things were quite different in my house. 
to other people. So that's when I realized that actually, yeah, this was a bit, bit strange. And um, I felt really conscious of that, actually. In, in this, I suppose it's that age, isn't it? You know, you start to become more self-aware. And uh, I thought, oh, dear, actually, people, people just think we're a bit weird. Yeah, no, I treasure, absolutely treasure it, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also it's so important, right? Like you talk about how you look back at it. And, uh, and of course, the whole evolution from how we care for animals, what we do with animals, what we do for animals, the ways we do it, and, and how so many of those things have evolved and some of the things that you and I have talked about while I was there. But of course, you know, these extraordinary, it is of course also very easy for people to now talk about how, you know, this might be not something we would do today, but it is, it is really important that we talk about all those aspects, right? Just like zoos, aquariums, sanctuaries, whatever research facilities, we all have to look at what the past was like and what are we learning? What are we doing? How are we changing? And or what stays the same? What is good, right? And so this sort of commitment of like, we are going to care for the animals. Uh, that's certainly that's been staying with me while I've visited you and, and the animals there. And you talked a lot also about you know, how you care for the various animals. So perhaps you can go a little bit back in time and talk about, you know, what was once the Isle of Wight Zoo and now is the Wild Heart Animal Sanctuary. You know, back in the day, we, we, we did um, participate in quite a lot of breeding of animals. And, you know, certainly in the 80s, it was becoming really, starting to become really well-known globally about the um, dire straits of tiger populations in the wild and zoos were kind of looked to to just breed as many as they could. So we had 30 tiger cubs born to one female, which I believe at the time might have been a world record. So there was a lot of breeding going on, a fair amount of hand rearing as well happening. Um, so that, there's a lot, lot of memories of um, you know, gaining experience, I suppose, in those sorts of areas. But then gradually we started responding to an increasing need to actually bring in surplus animals. So there were quite a few animals that were homeless really and need, needing a home. And so my dad sort of kickstarted that element where we were giving homes to a lot of ex-zoo, um, big cats, for example. And at one point we had 28 big cats on our relatively small site. So it sort of developed from the heart that need to give homes to those animals, but then actually quite quickly, we became overflowing with them. So it was um, growing up, you know, there was quite a lot of conflict, I suppose, for me to sort of understand um, what was the best ways to do things. Because sometimes if you react purely with your emotion, then um, it's not always the best outcome as well for the animals. Uh, I mean, the animals that came to us, we gave everything that we had to give them, but our resources were quite slim in terms of area that we had, funds that we had. Um, but one thing, and to this day, and I think you probably noted this when you came to see us, really remains absolutely, you know, unshiftable. And that is the individual life that matters for each and every one of our animals and never ever were our animals commodities never ever were they put you know behind the commercial imperative and when I look back on how we struggled financially at how horrific in a way that those times were for my parents trying to keep the place going I think that's absolutely like something which I respect so much is that the animals' lives always came first. 
So we carried that through. Um, and that sort of fed into wanting to make sure that we worked with the animals. Uh, so that's when obviously we met, you know, with the training side of things and wanting to be a little bit ahead of that curve. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really just grounded in, in the fact that the animals were always our family. You know, we never looked at them as like money making things or of course we we're funded by people coming to meet them and have experiences with them. But first and foremost, they were our family and, and we are their custodians really. Um, and yeah, and I think that's um, just such a valuable thing that I learned at a really young age. Yeah, and um, absolutely. And today, whether it's a sanctuary or a zoo or an aquarium, with many of the programs, especially, of course, in contemporary like progressive uh, facilities, we're really talking about, you know, animal well-being is fundamental because it matters to those individuals. Right. And then we can have, you know, whether we have meat and greed or whatever, there's so many different or just coming to see the animals. There's so many different programs now that are really geared around what you described that you and your family have tried to do for all these years is looking at how do we put the animals first? Yes, we need to cover the cost, but we don't want to do things that are going to harm the animals or not in their best interest or they're maybe repetitive. They're not like one way or another, but because they have to do them every day, it's kind of boring or so. And that's a really interesting and very important shift, right? Because well-being yep. matters it's not a it's it's a goal and it's an end in itself and i think that's really important especially also in spaces of conservation and other goals that we might have how, like how do we not lose sight of that individual perspective right and and also i think recognizing that animals are not templates you know there's not a template tiger that's a tiger that's a lion they're all completely unique individuals within their species so to say you know this is um a policy for tigers or lions of course there can be a framework of policy but then you have to flesh the bones out with the individual experience of that animal that individual then it's it's genetical you know just like us it's tendency to have a certain type of character personality um, and how that sort of um, plays out with the external world and of course, it's it's quite a challenge. You know, we have, for example, say 100,000 people that come to visit us every year. Um, and they obviously they want to see the animals. They may want to take photographs of them. Um, but for us, it's always animals first. And there should be no expectation. It shouldn't be, it's not a transactional thing. Oh, I pay this money to come in and therefore I am entitled to this, this and this. No, it's the animal's home and you pay the money to fund their care, and in return, you may get a chance to glimpse them, or you may get a chance to even meet one closer up. Or, but I think we really have to um, you, you know, reframe the way that people think from the moment they come in, or if not beforehand, so that they're not confused when they're coming in and they're thinking that these animals are, in some ways, it's like, it's just a human dressed up as a lion on a rock you know, ready to meet them, they shouldn't be there. And that for me is also really important is to communicate to people that actually um, they, you know, we, we have no right to see a lion. You know, we don't live in, in Africa. Do we have a right? No, we don't have a right. We don't have any intrinsic right to see them. 
Um, but the fact that we can stand six foot away from them is actually, I think it's, it's very sad. You know, of course it's, you know, joyful on many levels. Of course it's impressive. Of course it stirs huge emotions in us. Um, but also I think there should be an overriding emotion almost one of, of um, in a way it's a, well, a very reflective, you know, sort of feeling about the fact that these animals are only there because of humans. They're not living as part of the functional ecosystems. They haven't ever known total liberty. And when people leave, they could buy a cuddly tiger in the shop and they can go home and they can go on holiday and they can, you know, do, choose to do whatever they want to do. Those animals can't, they are there for life. They're not going into the wild. They are not, that is their life experience. And I think we have to reframe a bit this idea of going to the zoo or going to a sanctuary as just a fun day out. Why should it be? I mean, not saying that we shouldn't have joyful experience and we shouldn't have these great connections, but we, we should never forget, you know, like every moment, we should never forget how we're coming to have those experiences. And I think hope, hoping as well that one day those experiences won't be necessary, you know, that we can actually keep animals in the wild. We can protect them without the need to see them even. Um, just knowing that they're there should be enough, really. But that we have a long way to go <laughs> and we're not going to leap between the now and, the, you know, what, what, what's can hopefully going to come in the future. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, there's always for me lots of conflicting emotions, I suppose. And people could say, well, you've been really fortunate because you've had the life that you've had and you shared those very intimate experiences with those exotic animals. And I would always say in reply, yes. And I, you know, forever take that to my grave and have many happy memories. But also, I would also wish that I had never met those animals as individuals and rather known that they'd been in the wild. Yeah, and I think... That is a really important aspect. I feel many of the same, you know, many of the things that you say resonate with me because I feel them in a similar way where like it's this incredible privilege. It's amazing to be working alongside animals to care for them. And at the same time, yeah, it's it's extremely sad. And also, you know, looking at what our zoos, you know, how came zoos to be. Uh, even if it's hundreds of years ago or longer, you know, lots of different ways that we interact and not just with zoo animals, with all animals, right? In all kinds of systems. But I think, and that is also what really is important, right? If we think that this is how it ought to be, then uh, I think we really miss a very big uh, aspect of like in an ideal world, you know, hope there shouldn't be any zoos. I mean, especially progressive zoos today who talk about, or, or sanctuaries who talk about, you know, this is, and uh, they're caring for their lives or, you know, involvement of, of protecting habitats or maintaining, you know, viable populations. If we would be, you know, like Professor Wilson talks about like 50%, right, of the earth is, is for other animals. If we would move to a different world, then a lot of what we have to do today is zoos, aquariums, sanctuaries and, and other rehabilitation centers. Uh, would be non-existent or less, but that's not the reality. And I think that's really important, right? What is what is what we hope for and what is the reality for many animals today? And that's that's something we always have to straddle. Yeah. 
to say. I mean, I think, you know, that the, the, obviously your work and, and our work, a huge amount goes into trying to maximize the quality of life and well-being that those animals have. But let's face the fact that really, you know, they, they shouldn't need us. They are, of course, they have evolved over millions of years to be very adequately able to look after themselves and provide the best for themselves you know, if we give them that chance to live in the systems that they're designed to be functional within, then they shouldn't, but they're having to conform to our system and we're needing to make sure that they are as happy as they can be within that system. But that's not a system that they should be in. Lots of work to do. I think our work will never be done. No, unfortunately not. And I think it's also this part of where we have to accept that many of the things also that we start today about connecting to people and, you know, being, being uh, change makers and involving our public. And we're going to talk about some of your, you know, programs that you're using for either protecting animals that are now perhaps as companion animals with people that really shouldn't or other things. We, we might not see the end of that, right? Uh, but we have to start. We all together have to start at different places to make, uh, to make the world a better place. And so perhaps, you can talk to us a little bit about some of your, you know, travels that uh, are related to, to the zoo that have to do with conservation or protection of, like, for example, your travels to India or Sumatra. Yeah, so um, the more recently, um, well, there's still quite a while ago now, in 2015, I joined six other zoo people and uh, we, we went out to um, so Western Sumatra to uh, join the Tiger Conservation Protection Unit out there who work in the Kurinchi Seblat National Park, where they have, I think, around 150 of the 400 tigers that, that live in Sumatra. So obviously these animals are, are under a lot of threat, and particularly because of the um, traditional Asian medicine market still, they're poached for obviously every part of their body that can be utilized for uh, sort of those the sort of ancient um, medicinal uses. Um, but the, the unit that we were working with, they had um, lost control of a part of this national park that they normally patrol through. They do incredible work, sort of research work, also um, outreach work. They work with the sort of fringe communities in the forest to try and keep the conflict between those sorts of predators and the people um, minimized. Um, but they also do a lot of hardcore kind of investigative work into wildlife crime um, and confronting poachers head on. So it was for me, it was, you know, a really um, unique experience, I suppose, to go and visit an area where I would talk about these places all the time and about the sort of day-to-day -day persecution that tigers were up against. I mean, we've lost 98% of our wild tiger population, sorry, 97% of our wild tiger populations in the last 100 years, which is absolutely catastrophically grim, you know, as a statistic. And they're kind of holding on obviously by threads in their, in their populations um, across Asia. So it was, it was I, you know, I knew that it was gonna be a really um, sort of rich experience, but also one that was potentially gonna be pretty disturbing. And it certainly was. We lived in the jungle for three weeks. Um, of course, that was disturbing, you know, from the usual points of view of catching all sorts of things and being pretty violently ill. 
Um, but that in itself uh, was a great experience. And I built huge respect for these guys who would just spend months away from their families in these really inhospitable conditions, putting their lives on the line to save the sort of remaining tigers that were living there. Um, and, and that was a passion that honestly I just had never experienced before. I mean, they were just so fueled by their desire to, to literally, you know, get these, these tigers um, protected, like hands-on protection, uh, or the, the ones that remained. Um, and one of the things that really stuck with me is uh, finding a relatively recent site where a tiger had been snared. And again, it's sort of when you talk about all these things, it's quite, you know, when you're remote from them, it, you know, it, it, is, it is hard until you, I think, until you actually, you kind of almost, you know that it happens, but there's always disbelief. Can it really still be happening? Can people really be putting pieces of wire in the ground to, to, to grab a tiger's ankle? And, you know, and then they would, oh, well, we were told that they would normally snare a tiger and then, patrol every five days see what they'd caught so this poor animal we could see evidence of the fact that it had been trying desperately to get away and there was a tree about six foot away from where this animal had been caught um just days before they think days before we we, we, we found the site and it had been scratching at the tree in desperation trying to free itself um its scats were still fairly fresh on the ground and then we could see the bullet, the bullet holes where the animal had been shot because they, you know, when they approach, obviously you've got a pretty angry tiger. What are you going to do? Would they just shoot it? And then we found a site where they had cooked the um, bones and to get the flesh off the bones because they tend to discard the skin because the skins act as identification and, and they can be more easily found, you know, as to, to who's committed the crime if the skins are... Um, identified because they've been been mapped photographically they often they, they destroy the skin um, remove the bones because they have obviously huge value um, and make their way out of the forest um, so we that site was still fresh where they you know when they committed that crime and that was absolutely excruciating and also because I was bringing it back to the, the tigers that I loved the tigers that I knew so again it's not just about the destruction to the species it was about knowing those individuals had suffered you know at that spot for some non-proven non-evidenced you know um cure for arthritis and this and that it's, yeah pretty horrific but um so our, our, our trip out there was, was PR related. It was to sort of bring um, media attention to, to the, the plight of the tiger there, also to fundraise for them and, and just to learn to be able to come back home and, and actually talk in a more informed way about what was happening out there. So, yeah, that was, uh, you know, the, the, a nightmare in many ways, to be honest. Um, and... Years before, years before that, I'd gone out to India for the first time ever um, to, to sort of experience tigers in the wild. And I went to Madhya Pradesh, which is in central India, where they have the strongest um, population of wild tigers still. And the park that I first visited, um, protected area, is called Kana. And that's the park where Rudyard Kipling got his inspiration for the Jungle Book, which I'm sure most people are familiar with. Um, 
And people always said to me, oh, India, you love it or hate it. It's just like Marmite. And I absolutely loved it. From the minute I, I set foot, I just smothered me with, I, I don't know, I just felt like weirdly like I'd come home. I loved everything about it. But I, I suppose certainly the first memory that I, I really uh, had there that kind of touched me to the core was waking up in the park the first morning and hearing a tigress calling at sort of 5 a.m. Now I'd grown up my whole life waking up in the morning, hearing tigers calling, um, early morning alarm call, get ready for school. But here was a tiger that was reigning over its own territory, not a tiger that was calling in Sandown on the Isle of Wight, Southern England. This was a tiger thousands of miles away that was proclaiming its territory and all the other animals in that forest literally bowed to that animal you know it was like the leading part and that to me was the most moving experience one of the most moving experiences of my life was like yeah you know now the tables have turned and I'm in your territory I'm at your mercy and this is where you should be so I'd sort of gone out there partly also to get some inspiration for habitat design back home because we were at that point when this was still around 2007, when we were converting our habitats to make them look more naturalistic and have a, a you know, more respectful feel for the animals. So I visited se uh, several parks and alongside that also looking for a um, conservation, a kind of grassroots conservation project for us to back, which we didn't find but we found later on, and we actually found that in the Western Ghats of India, and we continue to support this amazing group of volunteers um, that work out, out in, in a Badra National Park. And um, they do phenomenal work. I mean, they're a small NGO, but my word, I mean, they're punchy people. They do not take no for an answer. They stand in the way of dam building, mining, luxury hotels going up in the areas and again that fierce fierce sense of you cannot take these tigers they're ours that's it and that's what drives them and um we're very happy to to be a big supporter of their work yes yeah, so and i think these are really also important stories right to to hold space for how much grief is there also in our work with regards to not only hearing the stories but going out there and and living some of it and like you say the appreciation to others who are doing this on a day-to-day -day basis and perhaps you cannot you know do this every day I can't do it every day but we can certainly try and see okay so who are you know is that one NGO or multiple depending on your time and budget that you can support so Charlotte perhaps what you could talk to us about next is actually first perhaps talk a little bit about the history like you know how did you go from the Isle of Wight Zoo to becoming, you know, the trust and, and then also the sanctuary over the, the last years. Yeah. Okay. So um, in 2016, um, we formed the Wild Heart Trust as a new charity. Um, and, and that was really born of the fact that, you know, I felt that ch uh, charity was a natural territory for the work that we did. We were previously privately owned as a family business, but all of the profit we made went back into the park anyway, or the, the zoo. So it just seemed to make sense. Plus we wanted to be able to access some more fundraising capability. We wanted to grow our pot of people who were gonna help with the governance and so forth. 
Um, it really just felt right. So we did that in 2016. I have to say it wasn't the easiest thing I've ever done in my life um, to take an existing um, zoo as a business and turn it into charity. But we got there in the end. And then, of course, a few years later, um, COVID hit. And uh, like everybody, we were, you know, very suddenly severely affected because we had to close our doors. We had um, no income through visitation. So we had to immediately sort of turn ourselves around like a little smart car and, and start uh, gunning for the, the fundraising and so forth. Um, but we had all, prior to COVID, we had already decided that we were going to, I wouldn't, I mean, it was a rebrand into the Wild Heart Animal Sanctuary, but it's not, wasn't a change of identity. It was more that people were saying to us, look, you're not really a zoo, you're more of a sanctuary. And this was constant. People were coming in and telling us this. And we were say, actually, yeah, we're more of a sanctuary because we're not breeding our animals anymore. Um, we're taking more and more rescued animals. And actually, that's what we want to do. We want to commit ourselves to being a forever home, really, for those um animals that have been exploited and abused and need somewhere to go and we've got this beautiful little sanctuary by the sea and um you know that's our niche that's what we'd like to do so we thought it would just make sense to align our um physical entity with our charitable entity and um, so we took that decision last year last april and it's been entirely the right decision it feels like to me we're suddenly wearing the right clothes you know, it's like if someone makes you wear the wrong clothes and you have to go somewhere like when you're a child and you constantly want to pull them off because it doesn't suit your identity anymore. And um, this is this is exactly it just aligns really to what we're doing now and our philosophies. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that certainly seems to be working well for us. Um, there, there's been a very good um, sort of, you know, uh, response to that in the community. Um, and people are very proud, I think, now to be part of the work that we that we do, and they understand what um, our sort of aspirations are. Um, and of course, we are small, and it will always be, li be limited the number of animals that we can take in. But that's why we also have a campaigning imperative. So, yeah, we bring animals in, and we try to to turn their lives around and give them a life worth living. But also then we use those animals in um, the most authentic sense, really, as ambassadors. And so we don't say that with like just it's just like our oh, animals are ambassadors. They really are ambassadors. And um, we use those animals uh, to, to really give a voice to campaigns. We have one at the moment called Survival. And this is a campaign to ban the um, breeding, which is le legal here in the UK, uh, and in many other places, to ban the breeding of exotic felines with domestic cats to produce desi designer cats like savannah cats that are, you know, very Instagrammable, finding their ways into people's homes. And of course, they, they're half, oh, they're part wild, they're part domestic, they're completely confused, messed up animal. So we recently took in two servals uh, that are rescued from somebody's house in France. Um, likely destined for that trade and those animals are now fronting that campaign so you know this is very important to us because otherwise if we just bring in animals from behind closed doors we look after them you know it's it's sort of it doesn't deal with the the wider problem at the top and therefore it's never going to stop 
so we have to to try and use those animals you know to to get into claw into the emotional hearts of people but then back up with science and back up with evidence you know why things need to change sometimes i think it's just an ethical there is just an ethical rationale though you know it's like wrong it's wrong to breed a a serval with a domestic cat is that not wrong in 2022 we know better than that more sophisticated as a species than to be need to be playing around with you know the genetics of other animals like that yes and keeping you know servals as companion animals is not you know absolutely not acceptable to me either so i think it's great that you are working in these door sorts of spaces where you know maybe there's not so much attention yet and and it's so different in different countries which species you know, are allowed to be at home with people or in the garden or, you know, in circuses. There's so many different things there. And so perhaps can you tell us a little bit about what sort of activity? So when we're talking about animal experiences, you know, through the lens of the animal and this visitor or the campaigns, what sort of things are there to do for people or to learn about or to action on? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is to say, and this is work in process, you know, we're definitely in a transitional period at the moment, is that, you know, we are looking to, to really revolutionize our whole experience so that when people come through the door, they will, for example, be paying for a day adoption for an animal rather than handing over uh, an admission fee, for example. So we're, we're trying to work right from the beginning. Um, so that people kind of understand what the position is right at the, the first point of entry. Um, and then when they come in, the idea, the concept is that they have, it's kind of like pick and mix, you know, they come in and they will be given the opportunity as they are at the moment, but we're growing this suite of things that people will be able to choose from to sample different ways of living. For example, vegan restaurant, vegan cafe, you know, really sustainable ways to shop and um, ways to to make your garden more more friendly for wildlife and all different things. So when they come in, it's not just like going to the zoo for a day to have a fun day out. You know, it really is about understanding all the different little things that you could do that would impact the planet, uh, be kinder to the planet and also kinder to animals and kinder to yourself at the same time. So it's like win, win, win experience. Um, of course, the animals themselves, the living, breathing individuals have a big role to play because, you know, like for all the talking that we can do and, and, and show and telling those animals, uh, you know, people, when they do have an experience and encounter with them, um, it can it can literally transform the way that they think. And we know that because people come back and tell us that, you know, we met one of your animals and literally that we could not go home and do the same thing again or think the same way again. Um, I think certainly for tigers, of course, people are always massively drawn to them because in one way they know that those animals are potentially incredibly dangerous and could kill them. Not that they'd want to eat them. They often think they would, but we know that they have generally better taste than to eat humans uh, unless they're really hungry. But they have that sort of edge that they could kill you, but also they look a bit like your house cat, you know, or you kind of like, they look familiar or they're cute or they're beautiful. There's so many things wrapped up in one. And the other thing is that, as you all know, they, they, they can communicate with us directly. They can say hello. So we, when people come in, it's a really intimate visit. Um, we have people that guide uh, people around the, the sanctuary. 
um, that will introduce them to the different animals, tell them their stories, and will teach them how to speak to them. So when you come to visit our sanctuary, you'll be taught how to say hello to a tiger. So you don't say hello by trying to roar in its face because that's really actually not very friendly. Um, but you, you, you go and you blow air through your front teeth like a row of Fs. And that is the tiger chuff. And that is how tigers are you know, friendly to each other. So we will arm people with some of the language to actually communicate positively with the animals. And the animals will often come up and they will choose to come and say hello to people. And this blows people's minds. They like, can't believe it. Like they go home, we've spoken to a tiger today, you know? And, and I think that is something, again, it's just bridging that gap, isn't it? You know, between ourselves as homo sapien, panthera, tigus, tigus, you know, it's how do you bridge that? How do you get people to think beyond it's terrible what's happening to tigers and imagine if it was happening to that tiger you know it's a different level of concern that people have then and they're more likely to go home and not buy a Kit Kat because they don't want to damage the environment that's been ravaged for palm oil growing in Sumatra or wherever so it's connections and, and emotion for us is is really key and then building on that um, and then it's not just about tigers, you know, you've touched on also like people with their companion animals. So we have a little area where we have, for example, rabbits and guinea pigs. And, and that then is all about sort of saying to people, it's, it's you, you need to think about the animals that you have the most chance of controlling happiness for. And some of those animals are the ones that are just living in your home or potentially in your back garden or the animals that you might be going to eat tonight you know, and starting to not preach to them, but just get them to be thinking, I suppose, with a greater conscience about what it means to be in a position of decision making about as a consumer, whether that's a consumer because we buy a pet or we keep a pet or we eat an animal that comes with the responsibility. Like you have to really, you have to inform yourself about the life that animal has had. And you have to inform yourself about how to give the best life to an animal that is, you know, dependent on you. So we have animals, the rescued rabbits. So the idea is that all of our animals are rescued and those animals have a specific role to play to help us create change because we believe, um, as do many others now, that caring is not enough. It may be a first step, but action is what's needed. Um, otherwise it's, you know, people come in or they care about things. They learn a few facts that they may have been able to find out on Wikipedia and they go home. It's not good enough. Now we need people to go home and do something different, think something differently, make some difference. It's small steps, isn't it? But actually who knows? We don't know where tipping points are certainly environmentally when it comes to biodiversity loss. None of us know exactly, you know, where those tipping points are going to be. But maybe what matters is that we've tried. Absolutely. And, you know, bringing people along, right, from meeting the individual animal and knowing that they have personalities like we do and, you know, that they can be actors of change and connecting that to the people that you are, you know, supporting also through you know, the financial aspects of the trust in Sumatra or in India and wherever else you're working. So with this podcast, there will be links, obviously, to the trust and, and to the sanctuary. So if you want to 
you know, learn more or get involved, but really also doing that on the spot, right? Doing that with your visitors and seeing in what ways can they help you and help tigers and help habitat. And that's just wonderful that everything is interconnected and they have, they, obviously we can't focus on everything, but they can choose what is it that I could, you know, exactly. how can I vote, you know, with my wallet or what choice can I make today? This uh, is going to make and it's about empowering, not disempowering, isn't it? And also, you know, our point of view is we're on the journey too. I mean, with, there's still so much room for us to absolutely and get better, but, but, you know, we can't do it all at once, but there are certain things that people can do that don't cost them anything. And so, for example, you know, talking to people about, it, you know, not having selfies taken with animals on a beach, you know, or not going to visit circuses. And we have obviously big cats that have come from circuses that have been, their whole life has been around entertaining human beings as if we haven't got enough entertainment we've got netflix we've got books we've got you know we can entertain ourselves in so many ways we shouldn't need to see a tiger jumping through a hoop of fire anymore um so so many things that people can do that just it's about shifts in it's just the compassion isn't it it's about you know getting people to think how would i feel how would i feel um, and because we are quite small, we can do that, I think, really effectively um, because we can bring about debates. I mean, it's not all for us about cozy conversations at the trust. It's about really getting people to to have, you know, some pretty deep conversations, you know, and and really eke out, you know, some of the, the ethical thoughts about things, what's right and wrong and and how do we go forward knowing more and more about what's right, but still doing what's wrong and, and how do we bridge that gap and how do we make it smaller? And um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a big challenge. It's, it's a really big challenge, but definitely, you know, we want everybody to feel that they are, they are all conservationists and they are all change makers um, and they can all go home and make an animal a little bit happier. Yeah, um, absolutely. Whether it's like the urban wildlife around them or like you say, right, or could you maybe you live in a small apartment, but could you put, you know, some flowers in your window or in your balcony for the insects or you know, giving could, back? Yeah. Could you help uh, your neighbor who is alone? Right. It's not only for other animals, but also the human animal and urban cities. And there's just so many things you have to find what resonates with you and where do you think you can make a difference, whether it's at your school or, yeah, and it's wonderfully uh, inspirational. And it's, I mean, that's for us, you know, our strategy is, is really like sanctuary Isle of Wight world. And we see it kind of concentrically like that. So although, of course, the majority of our resource and time and energy is, is sanctuary-led, then we have this kind of circle that goes around the Isle of Wight. And that is about that we have, a, we're involved in the release of seagulls back to the Isle of Wight, first time in 240 years, about beavers coming back to the Isle of Wight. They haven't been there naturally since the 16th century and they're persecuted and sent packing. Uh, protecting the reddish buff moth, this little brown little moth, you know, and, and getting schools involved in wildflower projects. And, and all this is community, very community-based, and then reaching out to the world for change as well. So it's in those sort of three spheres that we, we act uh, and react. Um, uh, but 
I think people just loved like that feeling that you've done something good and not something bad, you know, really celebrate it and allow yourself to feel good because we all feel so bad all the time. I think we just know that being alive is kind of a problem now, isn't it? We feel like just being alive on the planet is a bit of a problem, but we're here. So what can we, what can we do to, to leave a little bit of a legacy that is something positive, you know, whatever is going to happen in a hundred years time, who knows, but it's kind of about, I think what matters is, is what we individually do. And then the amplification of that, you know, as, as communities, uh, communities in a, in a geographic sense and communities in a, in a mindscape sense as well. Absolutely. And I think, you know, coming back to your stories of traveling and experiencing it and also knowing that, people continue to experience, you know, not just the difficult work conditions or being away from their families, but having to live the stories of, you know, on site of uh, habitat loss and species loss, ecological grief, that there needs to be space for that as well as hope, right? So if you haven't listened to our podcast with um, Dame Dr. Jane Goodall, she talks a lot about hope and why it's going to be so important, right, for all, all of us individuals to go forward. Uh, it's really a key aspect of uh, being able as, as individuals to, to, you know, hold space for what is not right, but then look at where can we, where can we make a difference? Where can we do something, right? So not to become hopeless. I think that there is only hope, isn't there? You know, and, and none of us actually know if tomorrow is coming anyway. It's all, we all have hope because we set our alarm clock in the morning because we assume we're going to wake up. And, you know, we, we organize our lives based on hope all the time. We probably just don't recognize that's a lot of what it is, that we are just hoping. Um, and we always have that same tendency, I think, that, you know, to hope th for things to be better. That's what empowers us and energizes us to to continue to do things in our lives. So, you know, there can be nothing wrong with that, I think, as long as, of course, we have a, a, you know, we understand reality, so it's not delusional, you know, we're not delusional in our hope, we're realistic, but that's just a way of being, isn't it? And I think there is no choice about that. We have to be hopeful. So I think Jane is, you know, and she is obviously a symbol of hope. And I, I fell in love with Jane when I was just a kid, you know, reading up about her, her work. Actually, at the time, I should say, I, I was hand rearing two chimpanzees when I was reading about Jane. And those chimpanzees were from a circus environment. And um, back in, in, in the day, you know, we used to have animals that came from circuses. And that's, that was also what massively inspired me to actually become a sanctuary to take animals rescued from circuses. It's sort of gone full circle because um, in my childhood, I... I was exposed to you know a lot of um a lot of bad stuff you know circuses but I've tried to use that experience I suppose positively to you know to use that when I was younger I felt very helpless you know um because what can you do a child but obviously as an adult then I feel yeah actually I'm going to use that negative experience and make it hopefully something more positive yes and I think there's so much there also for us you know we are infused in this you know we bathe in this every day but a lot of people are not right and a lot of people might not even know some people know they don't want to know some people you know there's so many and like accepting this sort of positive regard right just accepting that everybody is on a different journey 
And then, you know, in what way can we be, some people are light beamers to me, you know, so I can find my way and how can I be one for somebody else? And how can we work uh, and, and be in the, all that journey together, right? And that's such a, some people might not think about, you know, that their hopes are about, you know, um, holidays and, and other stuff that, that is not necessarily, you know, holidays obviously is on our radar, but it might be different sort of hopes than our hopes, right? And then, uh, so how do we do that together and, uh, and yeah, do it in a positive way? We've all been born into this world of consumerism or, you know, whatever. It's just like we are kind of infected by that from a very young age. And we've been fortunate enough, I, I you know, have landed obviously, you know, uh, in a very fortunate position from a very young child to be immersed in this sort of world and therefore be thinking about it. Um, but I think that it's definitely a case that we need to be um, sympathetic to, to those differences. And when people come in to, to us, you know, like I will say to the team, we're there to move them. We're there to move them up a notch, up a notch, up a notch. And we'll have, you know, thankfully it doesn't happen very often, but occasionally people might come in, they throw a stone at that, the tiger or something to get it to move because they want it to, to take a photo, for example. And as I say, that is very rare. But rather than just berate them, you know, and it's about, for us, it's about, of course, they're given a very strong warning. You do that again and, and you will be escorted off the site. But it's also about getting them to understand, like, how would you feel if we did that to your child? How would you feel about that? Because this is what you've just done. And, you know, and they start to maybe think differently and they go out. And hopefully when they next go to, to visit a tiger in a captive environment, they won't throw a stone at it. And in that case, it's job done. That's what we've done. And in another case, we, you know, people come in, they've already got great compassion for the animals. So we're moving them, you know, differently. So it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of just like you say, recognizing that, that we've all had different lives and those lives will impact on our perception of, of um, the wild animals and also our perception as ourselves, as just another organism living as part of an ecosystem. People say humans and other animals as if we are a different thing entirely when you just we're just a big primate aren't we that you know is actually uh in an incredibly privileged position and not always doing the best with that privilege but that yeah. connectivity getting people to understand that they are part of that system not a not a part of it apart from it but a part of it absolutely yeah yeah absolutely and i think you know some of the things when we're talking about change you know, some of the things that we learn in school today uh, are, should probably be very well replaced by a lot of other things that we should be learning in school today, right? Oh, that's, yeah, it's a whole podcast on that. Yeah, that's a whole podcast. I was going to say, we, we're coming to the end of this podcast, Charlotte. I'm so glad that uh, we had this conversation and definitely we can, we can continue in another one. But in conclusion, can you, I would love for you to share a story that is near and dear uh, to your heart uh, to conclude the podcast. Yeah, okay. So I, I started it by telling you the story of Zia. Um, and after Zia came to live with me um, and changed my life, I then was joined by three other tigers that I hand raised, her little sister Zina, who is a white tiger, and then two siblings, Diamond and Asia. And I, I cared for them more effectively as their mom throughout their entire life. And they are, you know, I always say, if I was run over by a bus tomorrow, my, my work was kind of done, I suppose, in, in giving them everything that I could possibly give them. 
so the, my final little story, I suppose, was, um, it sounds like it's a sad story, but it's not. It was saying goodbye to the last of those four tigers, Aisha, who passed away at the age of 22, actually, as well. She was put to sleep. And so she was the last of my four kids, if you like, <laughs> in my tiger kids. And uh, it was just about sleeping on a camp bed next to her the night before uh, she was put to sleep and going to sleep hearing her snoring and waking up chuffing with her. Uh, we, had, um, we had a drink together in the morning. I had a cup of tea and she had some milk out of a little, uh, out of a little mug. And then that day, all the people who had loved her on the Isle of Wight and who'd known her came to pay their respects. And that was, yeah, for me, it's kind of, it's always really emotional remembering it. But I think that was like the sort of absolute, for me, the, you know, the finale. And it was like saying that she touched so many hearts, you know, and those tigers that never knew the world, they never knew Kana National Park but they definitely knew love. And that was, I think, yeah. I mean, I dreaded the day that I would lose her. And that by that stage, I had lost all of those four tigers, but it, it was actually a magical moment. And it was sort of just knowing that that part of my work had been done. And um, they had definitely, I think, had the best life that they could have had. So it was sort of like, yeah, from, from the start when I was 19, and this was just a couple of years ago that we lost Asia. So yeah, it was um, definitely um, the, the best possible outcome. And also because of the training work that we'd done, we were able to give her a hand injection to put her to sleep. So there was no fear, you know, she was not started with a gun. She was not scared in her final moments. Um, she had bad arthritis, so it was the kindest thing for us to do. But because of that work and because of the understanding of how to, you know, work in sympathy with those animals, um, from a husbandry point of view, we were able to say goodbye to her, um, I think, in, in, in just the best possible way. So, and as I say, people came and paid their respects beforehand. So I think that was like, for us, a culmination of our work done in a sense but still loads of work to do <laughs> still yeah. loads of animals to help yeah thank you so much charlotte for sharing that because those are very difficult stories but they're also beautiful stories right everything like you talked about several times already where you talk about how everything is kind of wrapped up in um but uh, into one but yeah how important also to take people with you know just not for you but also for other people who had known her and you know creating space for saying goodbye or doing something special and that whole you know celebration of life and and also after uh, an animal passes uh, and that's really beautiful thank you so much for sharing thank you so much sabrina it's been great to see you again after so long yes yeah i look forward to coming back to the zoo uh, to the sanctuary one day and uh yeah and it's it's really it was great working with you and your team and uh to met you with uh with the training of the animals it's been uh, it was really good so i can't wait to come back thank you so much 